All right, settle down, everyone. We are starting a new series, and of course, you know by now it is in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you don't have a journal, if you don't have a Bible, we have printed it on your worship guide, so you cannot dodge this scripture. So let's go ahead and get started. Uh, once upon a time, there was um, once upon a time there was a culture uh, that had a great drive toward competitiveness. They thought that sport was everything. This culture loved itself and loved achievement and loved self-promotion. Does it sound familiar? These are people who loved self-sufficiency. They loved self-congratulations. Have you heard of these people before? They valued full autonomy and entitlement almost above all things. They craved freedom. This culture overvalued knowledge above all things. This culture was full of competitive people, and because of the competition, success was everywhere. If you looked at sports, you would find success. If you looked at business or trade, you would find success. If you looked at social status, you would find it there. You would look, look at economic power. Guess what? You would find success everywhere. This was a place that entrepreneurs would thrive as they used their social networks of influence to gain gain prosperity. The mantra of the day was to get ahead, to get first, to make it happen. With competition comes another evil that comes with it. It's called comparison. These people love to put themselves up, right, by tearing other people down. So class, where was this culture found? Who is this culture that we're describing? Is it the good old U.S. of A here in the year 2020? No. This culture was actually 2,000 years ago in the city of Corinth, Greece. This sounds a lot like us, though, doesn't it? Um, We don't want to tell, we don't want anyone to tell us what to do. We like to call our own shots. We like to chart our own paths. And so we may be more alike to this ancient city and this ancient church and this ancient time than we would like to fix. There's a problem in Corinth because there's also a problem in us is because we are stubborn and here's the main point is that we are unwilling to be corrected. Because we know so much and because we know we're right, we can't stand to be corrected. And this is one of the biggest obstacles of our discipleship. One of the biggest obstacles to our discipleship is what we call autonomy. We think that we know best for us, and nobody can tell us elsewise. And yet the very nature of discipleship is exactly the opposite. The very fundamental of discipleship is what we would call followship, right? As you follow after someone else, and that's why Jesus comes to the early disciples and he says, drop your nets and follow me. This is not autonomy here. This is actually following after someone's footsteps because they know the way, because we need someone to guide us. We need someone to take us on a journey that we cannot take ourselves. Discipleship is admitting that we need correction. And I know that 
kind of goes against the grain of our culture. But discipleship is actually saying we need correcting. Followship looks a lot more like a journey than it is a destination. So if any of us say we have arrived, we are now in the wrong. Discipleship is putting off the old self and putting on the new self. And so selfishness and stubbornness and being unwilling to be corrected, these things are simply not Christian or even un-Christian. This book, 1 Corinthians, was written, of course, to a church in Corinth. And so we need to state the obvious here, is that this letter that we're going to read is going to be presented to people, not a person, but to people, a flock of people a gathering of people that have gathered just like us. And one of the problems with Bible study today, both in your personal devotion and as you gather together around Bible studies, is you ask one simple question that may be one degree off. You say, what does this text mean to me? Or what does this passage say to me? While that's not inherently wrong, most of the New Testament was written to churches or a group of churches, meaning that we need to understand how the Bible talks to us as a local church, as a gathered body of believers. And so that's why we have come up with this sermon series title, We Stand Corrected. Because in this title, we are standing together. And we are going to be able to have to posture ourselves in a place of humility. Actually place ourselves in a place where there's other people that are taking us on a journey that we cannot get ourselves, that we can't go by ourselves. And so therefore we need to be corrected over and over and over because this is what we will hear in Paul. This is a book of humility. This is a book of repentance. This is a book of really wondering where your authority goes. We look at corrected because the book of Corinthians, we are going to see all types of things that you may or may not know is written in the Bible because the city of Corinth and the church of Corinth are truly messed up people. It's funny to hear people say, I really wish that we could go back to the early church or I really wish that we could go back to the first century church because everything would so be so great back then because they had it all put together and that's where the spirit of God was moving. And yet, if you look at 1 Corinthians, you're looking at truly a first century, an early church movement. And in this place, you will find people drunk at church. I don't know if any of you guys are drunk at church this morning, but if you arrived at a first century service in Corinth, there would be drunk people there. There would also be people that were suing one another across the aisles. One reason we do fellowship time is so that you wouldn't sue one another, okay? There are people naked, not in church, thankfully, but naked and sleeping with their family members, So we want to go back to the early church, do we? Well, this is the type of atmosphere that we are about to look at. And Paul is looking at them outside and saying, you need to correct your behavior. You need to be able to look at the ideal and come back a little bit. The fact is, is that the Corinthian church and the American church and Redstone church, we're all kind of messed up people. And we are in need of correcting. 
We've all always been a people that God needs to be worked on. Amen? We have never arrived, and nor will we, nor should we. And so this is a story, and this is a a letter that will get us there. Paul was so worried about the Corinthians that he writes four letters to Corinthians. Now, in our Holy Bibles, in our Holy Scriptures, we only have two of them, right? Uh, However, we know of at least four. There may have been more, but we know of at least four letters that were written to them. So here is the Apostle Paul just writing to them, begging to them for course correction. So the church at Corinth. Um, Here is a map. You may not be able to see it, but this black dot here, right here, this is Corinth, okay? So this is Corinth. Corinth is submitted there on this, what they call the narrow neck, right? It's also the word isthmus, but I really don't want to say that over and over. So this is a narrow neck of land. In Greece, it also had a harbor, not one, but had two harbors that it had to access. 44 years before Jesus arrives on planet Earth, uh, Corinth becomes a Roman colony. This is significant because it had sat in ruins for over 200 years It was established by Julius uh, Caesar, and it was refounded, and it was repopulated by his old regimen. So all the people that were able to, all of his veterans that served under him would actually populate uh, Corinth. Not only Roman soldiers, but you also have other free persons and Roman slaves populating this city in the early days, okay? So thankfulness and loyalty to the Roman regime is at the core or the ethos of this place. Uh, to the east of Corinth, right? To the east, you would find Asia, right? But also the major city of Ephesus. To the west of Corinth, you would see Italy or the big city of Rome. And so what you see in Corinth, because it has two harbors, one on each side, the east and the west, is the perfect place for businessmen and a perfect place for trade. It was a favored position inside Greece as well. So you had people coming in from the west and people coming from the east, but it's also exactly, almost exactly in the middle, north to south in, the, in, in Greece itself. And so it literally is in the crosshairs or the crossroads, north, south, east, and west. This place was perfect for trade, perfect for business, perfect for success. If you are a veteran, right, and you know what it means to, to rule under Julius Caesar, and you are a Roman soldier, And now if you have access to unbelievable trade, you don't need to be told told what to do. You got everything at your disposal. Tourists begin to flock into Corinth. That's because of the Isthmian Games, which is second only to the Olympian Games. So you not only have businessmen, not only do you have old vets, but now you have, you have tourists that come every two years that will come to these games over and over and over and make a profit. You hear things like chariot races and you, you hear of wrestling events. The Isthmian Games would also have flute competitions, which is interesting, and poetry readings. Um, so I don't know much about it. However, I'm just giving you what what I got. And so who did God ask to do the correcting? We now know that there is a place in Corinth that is established perfectly. We know that the church of Corinth is a little bit wonky and sideways. So who did God ask to do all of this correcting? If you look at the very first word in in the book of Corinth, it says Paul. His name is Paul. The author of this book is Paul. He becomes a missionary and the greatest church planter of the 
first century, probably of all times. But he wasn't always a good guy. You see, if you know anything about Paul's former years is that he, he, even though he was a very religious person, he didn't fear God. Instead, he was actually um, a mercenary of sorts, and he would actually kill Christians. Um, he had killed a Christian when he was on a road of Demea, uh, of, uh, um, sorry, what is it? Damascus, sorry. That was not in the notes. Uh, of Damascus, thank you. He was on the road uh, to Damascus when Jesus appears to him. Jesus Christ comes, lives, dies, resurrects from life, shows himself to other people, then ascends into heaven. In this, in this story, Jesus comes back to earth to rough up Paul. He strikes him blind and throws him into isolation for three days to get his attention. And he says, Paul, actually it's Saul at that point, but why are you persecuting me? So he gets all of Paul's attention. This is the person that is going to come and do the correcting to us today. Paul shows up in uh, Corinth. He's no longer a killer. Instead, he's a missionary and he is an equipper of the saints. He arrives in Corinth not as an authority figure, but instead he is a workman. It says that he, uh, we, we know he comes around AD uh, 50. He comes as a workman. He doesn't have any authority. It's there that he meets Aquila and, uh, Aquila and Priscilla. These are uh, historical figures that, are, that join Paul every once in a while, and you see them all throughout uh, the New Testament doing certain things. In Acts 18, we know that he has a home, at least, even though he's a workman and he can't buy, rent his own place. So one of the very first converts was Stephanus, and he stays and, and is host with them. He stays in Corinth for 18 months. This is significant because sometimes he just comes in and he leaves, but in certain places he comes and he stays and he falls in love with the people and he loves them very, very much. So he stays for, uh, for 18 months. Some say it's March of, of 50 all the way to September of 51, even though we can squabble a little bit about those specific dates. We then see him leaving in 51 and he goes and he establishes his now outpost in Ephesus, right? However, while in Ephesus, he continues to hear things. And by 54, he is receiving so many requests or so many things that were wrong with this uh, first church that he intends to write a letter. Paul, this is our writer. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. And our brother, Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I thank, I give thanks to my God always for you, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called by the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is Paul, 
We see that, oh, this is, uh, we see, we see that he is a murderer that's turned evangelist. And then the, uh, the, one of the very first things that we see of him is that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, an apostle is to prove a very important word inside of our epistle. Remember how we, we knew that the DNA of Corinth was you can't tell me what to do? Well, the apostle by its very nature is a place or a person of authority. So it's going to be an important word throughout this epistle. The reason that we begin, he begins this letter in this position is to gain this authority, to gain an audience, or to reestablish an ear with the church that he had just established just three or four years prior. Paul indicates that he is not writing to the church of Corinth merely to offer his personal opinions. That's why he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. They have to understand up front who he is and on whose behalf he is speaking. He is God's spokesman. That's what it means to be um, uh, an apostle. I found this quote here. It says, this is, comes from Dr. Crofton, whoever he is, in some commentary. It says, apostles are windows on God's, of, on God's design. I don't think that that was. I think that's a typo. Um, their vo- vocation is to be inherently transparent. So this is the job description of an apostle, is to be transparent. They do not promote themselves but provide, and here it is, an uninterrupted view of Christ. Come on, y'all. That's something. They do not promote themselves, but they provide an uninterrupted view of Christ. Their vocation is to be transparent, in which they are only trying to advocate for Christ and Christ alone. And so the reason for this apostleship was not just for authority's sake, but to truly point to Jesus and Jesus alone. We then know that Paul was a murderer turned evangelist. He was an apostle, has a position of authority. And then thirdly, we hear this word called, and this is also important. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. He is a called by the will of God. Paul stresses again with the definition of apostleship, but he stresses again the fact that this call to be an apostle was not something that he sought for himself. God himself, Jesus himself came knocking on his heart. God pursued Paul. This is not something he was seeking for self-acclaim. He was literally, as one commentary says it, he was pressed into service for God alone. And so back to the problem. The problem within Corinth is that they are young, right? As a culture, as a society, right? They're young. We're a little bit young here in this, in this room. Uh, they're in a regional city. We don't, we're not a port city, but we too live in a regional city, They were surrounded by smart and educated and successful people. We are here in a place with a university town and a medical uh, and and Eastman that we just just know what success or education means. This city sounds a lot like our city. These people should sound a lot like us. But the problem with that church, and maybe the problem with our church, is that we cannot be or we will not be corrected. 
And part of correction involves this idea that apostleship and being called by God is and involves spiritual leadership. Some of you don't like spiritual authorities over your life. You simply don't. You feel like you can go it alone. You feel like your relationship with the Lord is only between you and God. That is not in the Bible. We need spiritual authorities in our lives. So the question for us this morning would be, and I think to start the series is, are you willing to be corrected? But the sad part is that it really is not up to you or your neighbor. If we're going to have the Spirit come and do huge works in us, we have to say, are we willing to be corrected? Are we willing to humble ourselves and hear from the Holy Spirit, who is our authority, who hears from the Holy Scriptures, who is our authority, and somehow, some way, in some mystical way, that the preaching of God's Word has an authority over us and our lives? Are we willing to be corrected in this season as we go through this book? But he begins this this letter, not with correcting them. He throws lots of hammers and he throws lots of jabs and he he does and he says all kinds of direct things in this passage. But he doesn't start it, start this letter this way. I want you to notice where the line in the graphic stops. Because as strong and as, as, as influential I'm trying to get us to be rep- a repentant people and to be willing to be corrected, we also need to understand where our identity lies and where our character ultimately rests is not in our own achievement, our own morality, but we stand correct. And in both ways, We have to understand malleability where we need to be corrected, but we need to stand firm that we stand correct in Christ Jesus. We stand right in Christ Jesus. We find ourselves justified in Christ Jesus. So how does Paul start this letter? Not by correcting them, but telling them exactly who they are and how they stand in Christ Jesus. To the church of God that is in Corinth. You are a church of God, he says. Yes, you are in Corinth. Yes, you are a mess. Yes, you've been influenced. But you are the church of God. To those sanctified, that means you are growing up in Christ Jesus. That those to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. The way and true identity of you is more about Jesus than it is you. Called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how he starts this book. The church of Corinth is hemorrhaging and continues to make a mess of their faith and a mess of their lives. But despite how bad they are and despite how bad we are, we must take into account how Paul begins not by correcting them, but assuring that they are standing and Christ is firm and complete. We must understand our position in Christ Jesus. So how do we stand correct? We stand correct because God has called us. 
Do you see that? Paul called by the will of God. Verse two, the church of God by Jesus Christ called to be saints. We too have the same descriptor of us that we too have been called into this agreement because God has called us. Our own personal calling is simply to witness or to ambassador Jesus Christ. We are simply responding to God's call that he has on our lives first and foremost. And so we know what our vocation, or now we know what our job is, is simply underneath the fact that we are called by God and God alone. Do you remember Dr. Crofton? Do you remember the transparency that he has there? That we too must have a transparent focus of our lives to be Christ-like? The reason that God has called you is so that you too can be one of this, you too can be an apostle-like, so that you can be a transparent window to the world for Christ himself. And that's the job of all Christians. This parallels Paul's vocation of calling and parallels our calling as calling. We are called in Christ Jesus. So um, how many of you in here have heard of St. Augustine? Yeah, one of these or none of these? Okay, St. Augustine, yes or no? Um, anybody know of like St. Anthony? Anybody know what he did or, yes, okay. Anybody knows what, who St. Patrick is? St. Patrick, yeah, all right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, do we know that uh, Mother Teresa herself right, was now in sainthood. So we know the story of, um, by a show of hands, how many of you would consider yourself a saint? A tepid response from the congregation of Redstone Church. Either you're bashful or you don't want to participate thinking that you're going to be called on. All right. We just don't see us that way, right? Like whoever they are, St. Augustine, I mean, he read, wrote a tome of, just, I mean, have you seen or read? I mean, that guy is something. Mother Teresa, what? Living with lepers? All, I mean, there's no way that we will measure up. And yet, we stand correct because God has made you and made us saints. So if you couldn't raise your hand, now you can. You are a saint in Christ Jesus, not because of your effort, Mother Teresa, not because of your education, St. Augustine, but the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. You have been called to be a saint and a saints together. How, I mean, just how bad is it that we put these one people, these one-off people, male and female aside and lift them up as if they were something when Paul himself comes to a messy church and says, you guys are saints, not because of your actions, not because of your godliness. It's because Christ has come and branded you something different and it's plural. We are known in Christ Jesus as the sainthood of God himself. We're saints. To be a saint primarily is the notion of simply belonging to God. 
To put it another way, sainthood is received by God, received by Christ Jesus, not achieved. Sainthood is received. It's not achieved. There's nothing that you can do to gain um, uh, sainthood. However, you can be called into it, and that belongs to God. And what Paul is saying is, you need to stand correct because there's something special about you. The specialness is that the Holy Spirit has breathed on you and made your eyes open so that you believe in the risen Christ. You were positioned in Christ Jesus as a saint. The other reason that we're saints and we're sanctified together and it's plural is this idea that we're doing it together. You see this called uh, to be saints together, right? This idea, this Greek word is koinonia. You don't need to know that, but the Greek word means for fellowship or reciprocal, right? It means you coming and going this way and that way. Another way to put it is I'm a shareholder or I'm a stakeholder in this relationship. We are saints together. We're living out our status over and over and over. We are rejecting autonomy from the very beginning. Paul points out that our Christ-likeness here in these verses, that we are saints together, we are Christ-likeness, often happens inside community. So the go-it-alone Christian doesn't exist in the Bible. And so the Christian inside community, this is where Christ-likeness is found. And so become a member of a church. Start and join a team. Go to community group because you join a discipleship relationship. These are the places together in which we will reciprocate or we will fellowship together. You give a little and I will get a little. And that is how it's going to do over and over and over. Along with this together is this idea that we are joining with other saints in our passage. This idea that there is a global reality that this this Corinthian church, you are not just here all by yourself but you are a part of a universal church. Don't you know that in Troas, there are groups of people that are worshiping Jesus? Don't you know that there in Ephesus, there are people that are worshiping Jesus over and over in Antioch and you just continue in Jerusalem. There are people that are worshiping Jesus. You are not alone. And so all of this self-sufficiency that you have as your DNA, either by trade, because of your success or because of your military might, you're gonna have to lay that down. To follow Jesus, you have to do it inside a community together. And it's all underneath this rubric of Christ Jesus. Sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called together as we all call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the name in which we take. This is the view in which everybody sees our life is Christ and Christ alone. Thirdly, uh, because God gives us salvation, look at this in verse four. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace or the salvation, right? This gift of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. This gift talks in two different ways. This gift is a spiritual gift, but it's also this grace, this beginning gift, this, this, un, this unmerited favor that he gives to us. And what Paul is doing here is thanking God because salvation has come to this Corinthian church. I always thank God for you, Paul would say. Wait a minute. I'm thanking God for the drunk people 
in Corinth. I always thank God for you. Yeah, that's what he says. What about, I mean, just do you know how messy and crazy the first Corinthians are? And yet he says with his own, with, he's writing with his own pen, I give thanks to my God always for you. He is thanking them because they're a mess. No, he's thanking God for them because salvation has shown up on their doorsteps. I thank God for you. I praise God for you. I love you because I love Christ in you. This is a pastoral's heart, an overseer's heart because they see, he sees Christ in them doing unbelievable things. It's interesting here that he gives thanks for the salvation and he's so positive despite the abuses and Christ-likeness that he does not see. God has given them grace. God has given them salvation and he is thanking God for them. In a very practical way, God has given them gifts. He has given you gifts, he says, And in every way, you are enriched in him. So these gifts, and so this is verse five. In every way, you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed to you, so that you are not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We stand correct because there's proof that God lives in you. And the proof that God lives in you is that you have been given a spiritual gift and it is evidence. There's a testimony of those people around you. Now you should know that you stand correct because Christ is among you. These spiritual gifts have been given. The great surprise to Paul is that he is thanking God for these gifts and these gifts are the things that will likely get them in the most trouble. You see, because some of their divisions and some of their comparisons and some of their competitiveness and some of their self-sufficiency and some of their posturing actually has to do with their personal spiritual gifts. And, he, and they are looking at each other and going, my gift is better than your gift and your gift is not that good. And so they're ranking and filing and even the competitiveness has found its way inside the gift that God has given to them. The fact is that Paul's major teaching, one of uh, Paul's major teachings in this book is about spiritual gifts. This year, we will be wondering what our own spiritual gift is as we are able to give it to the body. Because the book of 1 Corinthians tells us that every single believer is given at least one spiritual gift for the unique service of God. If you follow after Jesus, you have a spiritual gift. And that gift is from God and it's gift to his church. And that's why it's a fellowship. That's why it's reciprocal. I gain and I give. I gain and I give. Are we using our spiritual gifts? Are we using the spiritual gifts that God has given us? To be a member, (laughs) to be, you know, a good community group leader, to be a good discerner, be a good listener. The fact is that Paul is writing to a church family. And the fact is that you and I, we belong to a church family. And here we have a culture of cleanup. And so some of us got to take out the trash. And some of us have to get dinner ready. Some of us have to pick up the kids. Some of us have to, and you just go on and on and on just like a family does at home, we too have the gift. 
Some of you have the gift of mercy. Some of you have the gift of prophecy. Some of you have the gift of encouragement. Some of you have the gift of administration. Some of you, and we don't know. And so if you are not using your gift from God to his people, then this is what this semester will be all about. It's clear that God freely gives this gift to his people. And that's why this word grace is put in this passage. Because grace is another word, charis, is a word for grace. Especially charisma, which means to be freely given. God has freely given his gifts to the church of Jesus Christ. And lastly, because God is faithful. How do we know and how are we going to stand firm? We stand firm because we are not lacking any gift as we wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom we are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We know that God is faithful and we know that God will, in verse 8, that he will sustain us to the end. Here, in the very beginning of 1 Corinthians, he's wanting you to look at the day that you will die. He will want you to look at the day that you will meet your creator, literally, your end. If we've been around the news this week and we've seen the death of Kobe Bryant, his daughter, and seven others. This was a guy who 12 hours earlier was just in Philadelphia honoring another player to surpass him as the third most leading scorer in NBA history. This is a guy who has all, I mean, plenty of wealth, all the wealth than anybody could ever imagine. He has the confidence to fill this room. He has power. He has wealth. He has status over and over. And yet, he did not know that Sunday morning, a week ago, was going to be his last We stand firm because God is faithful and he will sustain you to the end. But we have to understand that end. And none of us are literally promised tomorrow. None of us are promised today. God is faithful and he will sustain us. Paul ends with hope that God is faithful. That even though we sin and even though we blow it, God is faithful Even though we run amok and we run astray, God is faithful. The risen Jesus Christ isn't done with you and I yet. He wants us to be corrected in him. And so some of you may get discouraged by the local church and say, why aren't you doing this or why can't you do that? Because the local church isn't the faithful one. God is the faithful one. Do you know how many times the word God is mentioned in our passage? Six times. You know how many times Lord is mentioned? Five times. You know how many times Jesus Christ is mentioned? Nine times. Paul is trying to focus all of our attention not on our sinfulness, but on his faithfulness. God and God and God and God who is Lord, Lord, 
Lord Jesus Christ over and over and over. The problem with the Corinthian church is not their drunkenness at church or their nakedness in their privacy. The problem with the, the, with the Corinthian church is they have taken their eyes off Jesus Christ, who is their Lord. They're thinking that it's all about them when in fact the whole church needs to stop and be reminded about Jesus and what he has done for us. And so our application today is very simple. It's just the title. Do you want to stand corrected? And then do you stand correct? Because at the end of this series, we want us to know for sure that we are people who could be corrected by Jesus if he wants us to. But none of that risks our relationship with the Lord because we stand correct in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. So Jesus... God is faithful, and we are called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for being the faithful one. And we pray that even today, as people have learned about this, maybe for the first time, that they have seen a faithful God in a unique way, that they will see you, Lord, as faithful to him, to, uh, to us. There may be some in here that do not have fellowship with you, Lord, and I pray that today is the day for salvation. I pray that people will come to know you as a Savior and a Lord. Who are, and we are giving over control of our lives this morning because you are our Lord Jesus Christ. That means you are our master and we will follow after you no matter what. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.